aliens and flying saucers. This is all an illusion. Please pardon the confusion. You made an ass of yourself. Hey, hey, what's up? Welcome to the 10th episode of Two Writers Sling and Yang. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm a former Sports Illustrated senior writer, former ESPN columnist, the author of multiple New York Times bestsellers, and a Bleacher Report contributor. The music you're listening to is Croissant's Master by the dazzling MC White Owl. And this podcast is an ode to writing in all its forms, from journalism to songwriting to poetry to screenwriting to comic books to whatever genre I'm thinking of. And today's guest is Jessica Usman, a reporter at ProPublica, covering national politics and civil rights. And she's also a survivor of one of the scariest fucking airplane experiences I've ever heard of, which we'll get into, along with Jessica's work covering the political scene during the age of Senor Orange Crazy. Also, how one digs for scoops, knocking on doors, cold calling when people don't want to get a call, getting people to open up when they don't want to open up. This week, on Two Riders Sling and Yang. Right, so Jessica, first, um, thank you so much for doing this. Thank you for joining me. Um, most people call me from either their bedroom or a bathroom. Um, you're taking it up to, where exactly are you? I feel like you're taking us up to a new level. I am sitting in a uh, call room at ProPublica that they like to call the cry rooms because they have these glass doors that everyone can see into, like a cry room at like a church or a movie theater. Um, so Anyway, the whole newsroom can walk past and see me doing this very exciting podcast. Right. They're like, who's she talking to? <laughs> oh, it's just some sports writer. Oh. Just some sports writer, yeah. Shit, right. Um, <laughs> right. So I am, uh, I'm completely and totally fascinated by your work and your career. But oh. before we get to that, there's something. Now, we, we, uh, we DM'd about this briefly after it happened. But yeah. I'm so fascinated by this, and I have to bring it up, which is American Airlines. Flight 759. <laughs> oh, goodness. This yes. is August 5th. You're on uh-huh. what sounds like the most terrifying flight. And, and your pictures ended up being used all over the place because you tweeted some of the pictures. But you're, you're flying from Athens to Philadelphia. Yeah. You're on this plane. This is only a couple weeks ago. What uh-huh. happened? What happened? Oh, my God. We almost fell out of the sky. Um, so we're flying and we're like an hour outside of Philly. And the plane just kind of out of nowhere starts to pretty violently shake. Um, we had just hit some unexpected turbulence. So, you know, the the little seatbelt light came on and they told everybody to buckle up, but they expected it to pass pretty quickly. So they didn't make the flight attendants sit down or anything. And a lot of people, you know, just ignore that shit. So, um, and then all of a sudden, you know, it was like 30 seconds of like moderate, but like normal turbulence and then five seconds of really terrible turbulence. And then all of a sudden the plane just dropped. And so like a vertical, like you're sitting and you're just going straight down basically. Yeah. And we just went straight down. Like there were all of the flight attendants were up and because they were serving drinks at the time. So all of the flight attendants hit the ceiling and there was a gentleman sitting next to my father-in-law who also hit the ceiling and then came down on top of my father-in-law um and so it was just like mass chaos and we all had full beverages because they just served drinks so like my coffee was in my face like the the plane was dripping like raining coke and 
soda and like and coffee and it was disgusting so um yeah we all smelled terrible um and one of the plane like one of the flight attendants dislocated his shoulder there was thankfully a doctor on board who relocated it mid-air um and then another flight attendant had like was like his whole forehead was swollen and he was holding this ice pack up to his head there was one flight attendant who had had evidently been on break at the time so she was buckled in in like the break compartment that they have so she was fine and so she's running around the plane being like i'm the only flight attendant that's not injured does anyone need anything and it was just terrifying so they landed the plane really shortly after that because we cut in front of everybody but like we still sat on the plane for like an hour because they were trying to get all the people who were injured off it was crazy the thing that's kind of funny about you telling that story is you sound mostly concerned about the drinks. Like, to me, I'd be <laughs> like, shit, I'm going to die. I'm going to die. Oh, my God, I'm going to die. And you're like, oh, there goes the Coke. And there goes the- <laughs> my coffee. You know, I just like I think that it happened so fast that I was not there was no there was no moment where I was like, holy fuck, I'm going to die. Right. It was just like it just happened. And it was funny because there's this video that went around a little bit online that somebody evidently started filming right after it happened. And everyone is just laughing because it happened so fast and it was so terrifying. And then it just stopped, right? Like after the drop, there was no turbulence at all. And we landed really smoothly. And so all you could do at that point was laugh. Um, And, and I think it was just everybody being really nervous and there was like cheering. It was, it was really strange. It's like the end of a roller coaster. Yeah, it was. It was like the end of a roller coaster. So I think once we all realized that like we weren't going to die and like the most severe injury was a dislocated shoulder, which is terrible, but like yeah. not life threatening. Right. Um, <laughs> you know, we were all just kind of entertained by the situation. But it was funny because so I was on the I, I'd gone to Athens um, with my husband's family. And so we were all on the flight and I have to get all of my media like spots approved by ProPublica and I just didn't want to screw with that. Mm -hmm. So after I tweeted all this stuff and started getting these local media requests saying, can you come on the show? Can you come on the show? I was like, I can't, but my husband will do it. So my husband was on all these like hilarious, like he was on Good Morning America (laughs) and like the the Tonight Show on NBC, like all this stuff is like little face everywhere. It was really funny. I felt like his, I don't know, talent agent um, because I get all these requests and just like send my husband instead. That's so funny. People are people yeah. calling your house. Can I yeah. speak to your husband? Yeah, it was really weird. Like I would get calls on my cell phone being like, I'm looking for Alex. And I would have to hand over the phone. You're like, I'm the reporter, damn it. What the hell? <laughs> Come on. So it was pretty funny. Um, but but thankfully, I, I have now flown twice since then. And oh, I thought funny. I would be more nervous, but I wasn't. Yeah. So it was okay. Yeah. Um, now that's, that, that's the best intro to this podcast thus far. So, uh, there you go. Thank you for indulging me. So, um, (laughs) as I mentioned the intro, uh, you know, you, you cover national politics and civil rights for the New York times. And, um, I thought of you, yeah, excuse me. Yeah. For ProPublica. And I was going to, the reason I said the New York times is because I was going to read you something I read this morning. Oh, excellent. In the New York times. Mm -hmm. Um, because, and I was wondering what you thought about it because this kind of stuff scares the shit out of me and you covering politics. Sometimes I feel like people who are closer to something are less scared than people. Yeah. Do you know what I mean by that? Um, no, I think you're right. Right. And so this was, um, this was Roger Cohen in the New York Times this morning. Okay. I'll just read the opening paragraph. He, he wrote, you grow numb, you grow weary. I recall discovering a few weeks back that President Trump had lied about two phone calls, one from the president of Mexico and one from the head of the Boy Scouts. The call supposedly to congratulate him did not exist. They never happened. They were pure inventions. Ask if Trump had lied. The White House press secretary, Sarah Huckabee Sanders said, I wouldn't say it was a lie. 
And you're, I actually remember shrugging, and the shrug was terrifying. This is how autocrats or would-be autocrats cement their power. I have this thought all the time, mm-hmm. and you're a lot closer to it than I am because you cover it. And I right. wonder, do you, or are you like, that's a little overstating this thing. No, I mean, I, so I think that there's two ways to look at this, right? I think that it is entirely true that a lot of Trump's behavior has been normalized. I mean, I think that, you know, there's this this political science or sociological concept, I guess, um, defining deviancy down, which in other contexts is kind of stupid, but I think in, in this context is correct. Like, we just keep defining down what is acceptable behavior by the president of the United States. Um, and so, you know, we we want to say like, hey, he, it was a small thing. Don't worry about it. Like the nuclear codes aren't at stake. But I can't imagine that if we knew that George W. Bush or Barack Obama had lied about the existence of two phone calls, that's something that would have been just like a passing moment in the media. But I, you know, but I also think though that so much is happening right now. And this is such an unorthodox presidency and situation that it is, it is just impossible to focus on everything, right? Like there are, it, sometimes it seems like there are thousands of people who cover national politics, but they're just, there really are not. Like, we have a staff of, at ProPublica all over the country of 75, and there are only six of us actively covering the Trump administration as it stands from, like, a national politics perspective. There are other people who are covering things like environmental policy or covering things like education policy, but there are only six broad national politics reporters. And so we, even though it seems like we should cover everything and maybe we should, and maybe the lack of covering things means that we're defining down what it means to be president, it, we actually have to focus on something. Um, and so I think that one of the mistakes that the media makes all the time is that we just drop news stories as the news cycle shifts over. And in this presidency, that happens every few hours. Right. So, I mean, if we're chasing everything, we can't, like, we just can't focus. So I, like, I agree with that statement, but I don't know that it's preventable. Yeah. I actually found the Boy Scout lie unbelievable. And I was actually kind of shocked that it came and went so quick, that that someone literally invented a call that did not take place, Mm -hmm. saying that the call, not only saying that the call, the caller praised a speech he gave as one of the greatest speeches ever. Um, but he, he placed it uh, at the head of a, the Boy Scout, the head of the Boy Scout. Like we're not talking about the CEO of a company. You lied about right. the head of the Boy Scouts telling you how great you are. And I kind of agree with you. If Bush had said that, if Obama had said that, mm-hmm. it would have been a scandal for weeks. Yeah, it would have been. And I mean, you know, I think that I get continually frustrated with other journalists, but also readers who fail to understand the context of things, right? I mean, like, there was a lot of talk about, you know, well, why are the Boy Scouts inviting Trump anyway? But when, like, the Boy Scouts had invited every president ever to speak at this specific event, then most of them did it. Um, But I, you know, I I think that, I think that it's true, right? Like, that specific event would have, would have taken up news cycle after news cycle. I mean, we had entire news cycle about, like, the type of mustard 
Barack Obama put on his hot dog. Right. Like we freaked out about George W. Bush's pronunciation of the word nuclear. And we are not that focused on him lying about the Boy Scouts. And I mean, but I think again, right, like if we're putting things into perspective, lying about the Boy Scouts while completely insane um, is, is like not something that reporters would spend their time on over his like threat of direct military intervention in Venezuela or his threat of direct military intervention in North Korea. Um, so I think that, you know, we it's it's hard to get comfortable with the idea that some of the shit that he does is going to need to be left behind but that's just what's going to happen if we're going to continue producing good journalism that isn't completely distracted by a lot of the things that he does you know i have people tell me literally every day on twitter like this is a distraction this is a distraction that's a distraction I don't know if that's intentional, like, and I don't actually think that it is, right? Mm -hmm. I don't think that, I don't think that Trump and his administration are playing this, like, four-dimensional game of chess where they, like, strategically do weird things to distract you from, like, the larger picture. But even if it's not intentional, right, I think that it is still happening. I think that good reporters who otherwise would do really excellent accountability journalism on a single topic are getting pulled off course because so many things are happening to them all the time. And so I'm not sure what the solution is to that. Um, but I think that, like, I hope ProPublica is doing it right and allowing us to, like, kind of ignore these little blippy things and focus on our beats. So how do you, um, it's funny, I've, I've had mainly sports guests on here so far. And I really don't have to ask this question, but for you, I do. How do you, how do you go about this? Like, what is your, you wake up in the morning. Do you have any idea mm -hmm. what you're writing about today, what you're pursuing today? Like, how does this happen for you? Yeah. I mean, so ProPublica is so unique as an institution because like we don't do breaking news with the exception of super small areas where we're exclusively covering something that no one else is covering, it is very rare that we would do like a spot news story. Um, so because of that, we get to be a lot more focused in on our very specific beats. So my beat is civil rights um, under the national politics umbrella here. So I do a lot of coverage of like the Department of Justice Civil Rights Division. And for right now, like my main sort of civil right that I'm covering is voting rights. And it has been since last November. Um, and so like it's pretty, my stories are pretty clear cut. So I'm working on three stories right now and I like try to bisect them. So I work on this one in the morning, this one in the afternoon, and this one in the evening. And like occasionally there are distractions from that. So like today, the Presidential Commission on Election Integrity announced its second meeting um, in New Hampshire. So I had to kind of break and make sure that I could take that in appropriately. Um, but by and large, like it's really nice to be able to actually focus on one thing and cover that one thing really well. Um, so my day is blessedly a lot more predictable than someone who might work on a breaking news desk. Right. And is your, are you... What percentage of your reporting is phone work versus going somewhere? Is it, is it all phone work? Um, so I travel a lot um, for these stories. Um, so, I mean, like, I probably travel one third of the time, and then the rest of the time is 
phone work, um, or I do a lot of my own data analysis. So a lot of my time is actually spent like filing public records requests, pulling the data I get from them and trying to analyze it, um, which is not something I think a lot of reporters do themselves. Um, but I, I like to do it because I think it keeps things uh, nice and tidy. Um, so, I mean, you know, when I'm in the office, that's what I'm doing really is like filing lots of public records requests, doing a lot of data analysis and writing down what I've discovered on the trips. But, you know, like I travel probably one third of the time. So I'm, you know, I'm in D.C. a lot, but mostly I'm in places like Indiana and Texas um, and New Hampshire and places where voting issues are happening on a local basis. So, for example, I wrote a pretty long, in-depth story about the failures of the Texas voter ID law in the spring, and I spent probably close to three weeks in Texas for that story, like just driving around the state, talking to local elections administrators and voters. Right. Um, so it's, I mean, it's nice to be able to do that. Right. Are you, um, it's an issue that fascinates me. I'm not just mm -hmm. saying that because you're here. And I see it, see, I'm, I feel like I'm your typical schmo, right? And I see this issue almost like Luke Skywalker versus Darth Vader. Like there's a side that wants to let people vote and there's a side led by the Kansas secretary of state that wants to limit the vote to make sure that the GOP stays in power um, for right. as long as possible. That's a simplistic viewpoint, is it not? I mean, yeah, I think it is a simplistic viewpoint. I think, you know, I think that there is, I, I think that there are bad actors on both sides. Um, and I mean, and what I mean by that is that there is a lot of information or a lot of misinformation on the right and the left that makes it difficult for people to trust the integrity of the ballot, right? And the one that gets the most coverage is the folks like Chris Kobach, who say things like millions of illegal immigrants are voting all the time, which is fundamentally untrue. And Wait, let me ask you a also, question. Does he right. know he's full of shit when he says that? I don't know. I don't know. I mean, it... If he believes, if he's a true believer in his cross-check program, then maybe he believes what he says. The problem is that cross-check is a bad data analysis program um, and pulls false matches all the time. Um, there was a, I mean, a Stanford political science ran through cross-check data and found that of out of 200 positive matches that were identified from cross-check, only one of those would be correct. So, like, I mean, it's got a 1 in 200 success rate, which is pretty shitty. Um, so, I mean, if he really believes that that data is correct, then maybe he believes what he's saying. I don't know. I've never, I have put in four or five requests to speak to him. All of them have been ignored. So, Do you know, let me see, I, well, let, let me, let's get journalistic here. When you put in sure. those requests, what are you doing? Are you calling and going through a press secretary? I'm going through a press secretary. I'm, I've emailed his press secretary personally. I've emailed the press secretary for the vice president's office, um, who is in theory in charge of the commission. Um, it's very difficult to get a hold of this guy. So, and I, you know, and I, I, I like chatted with other reporters who have gotten a hold of him, and they have also said that it's taken months and months. So I'm not sure that I'm being treated any differently than any other reporter. Um, but the, I mean, you know what? The other thing about Chris Kobach is that he's a busy man, right? He is supposed to be the chair of this voter fraud commission, um, and he's also running for governor. And he is also the full-time secretary of state for the state of Kansas. So I'm not sure how he gets everything done that he does in a day. And I don't think that he does. 
Like, I think that he is dropping a lot of balls right now. And this, I've heard that from commissioners on the Voting Fraud Commission. This is a, uh, this, again, it's coming from a sports writing standpoint. Let's say you needed to speak to him. You need to speak to him. You need to speak to him. You call, you get nowhere. You call, you get nowhere. Mm-hmm. Would you ever just use Nexus, get his home address and knock on his door? Oh, I do that all the time. Would you do, do it for him? all the time. I would do it for him. I mean, yeah. I mean, like the, the, the way that I final, I put in more than a dozen requests with the vice president spokesperson about the voter fraud commission over the course of a month, never, never got a hold of him and finally just called him on his personal cell phone. And that's how I finally started talking to him. And what was his reaction? Was he like, why the hell are you calling me on my cell phone? He was like, uh, I can't talk to you on this phone because it's a, like, we're creating a government record. So let me call you back. And he did. But I think that if I had not called his personal cell phone number, I would never have gotten through to him. So, you know, I mean, I think like reporters have to resort to super creative ways of getting a hold of people. So, you know, let's take this. Let's take this in a totally different area. What I'm thinking about. I love this stuff. I am a so I am a phone coward and an in-person tough guy. (laughs) Like I love knocking on doors. I love knocking doors. I love the rush. I love the charge. I love that moment when someone answers. And I love that stuff. I hate calling. I get nervous on the phone. Um. How do you do it? How do you, we, I'm, I, we're, let's consider this a lesson. You want to teach some people how to freaking balls to the walls, get someone to talk to you. What do you do? You know what? It's funny that you say this because I actually teach a reporting class at Columbia and I have to teach my students this every semester. Like, I mean, like pick up the phone and call someone is a, is a course that I teach is like a whole, it takes like an hour and a half. And we go through this in every like investigative skills or like data reporting class that I teach because I will give students who are like grown adults, right? That like, this is a master's program. So these are like 30 year olds who come back to do a master's program at Columbia and they are still afraid to pick up the phone and call somebody. And this is like the most common fear in journalists that I deal with all the time. I mean, I think that it just takes a lot of practice, but I think that there is an there is an art to talking to someone on the phone that doesn't exist when you're talking in person because you can read body cues when you're mm-hmm. talking to somebody in person. You can kind of like bully them a little bit depending on how you stand that makes them feel like they need to talk to you immediately. You can't really do any of that on the phone. Um, and so one thing that I like to tell people is that they should, if somebody starts yelling at you, you should just shut up and listen to them scream at you and just sit there for as absolutely long as it takes them to finish screaming at you. And once they finish, they will talk to you like you're a person because they'll be embarrassed that they just screamed at you for 15 minutes. Um, And this, that is like the most successful reporting tip that I have ever learned in my entire career as a journalist. Wait, just, I got to say, that's genius because you, yeah. you're actually, you're ne- like, it's like this. Look, yeah. man, I'm sorry. I just blah, 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 blah. What do you want to right. know? Right. Exactly. That is exactly what happens every single time. Like it doesn't matter. Like I have used this with state officials. I have used this with federal officials. I have used this with like a dude who runs a bakery. Like it, it doesn't matter who it is. If they start yelling at you, you have hit it. Like as long as they do not hang up on you, you're going to get whatever you want out of this person because they're going to scream at you for 10 or 12 minutes. Then they're going to stop screaming and you're going to pause and they're going to say, I'm sorry. 
every time because that's just like that's how people operate right and it's like being a journalist and talking to people is a lot about just like letting them say whatever they want to you and wear themselves out I mean it's kind of like being in a boxing ring right like if you are like if you can't throw a punch like it's just about waiting until someone else gets tired and then throwing a left hook or whatever you know like it's not there's not a lot of skill here. Like I don't need to be a, you know, Harvard debater to get somebody to tell me what I want to know. I just need to let them talk and they eventually will. And so, I mean, I think that reporters, and then I think also that reporters are really, are really worried about being empathetic on a phone call with somebody. Right. And, and, and I think that there is this, you know, we can have a three hour long discussion about like, being an objective journalist and like what that actually means, if it means anything. But I think one thing that people are really afraid to be as journalists is, is empathetic. And I think that most people that you deal with are not trying to screw people over, or at least they don't think that they are right. Like most people think regardless of what they're doing, that they are doing the right thing. And if you as a journalist understand that and you try to empathize with that point of view, and I mean, like, I feel like most of the time I really actually mean it. Like when I'm being empathetic and I like try to figure out where somebody is coming from, I feel like I mean it. And I don't think that that's fake. And I think if reporters try to do that a little bit better, um, then then they'd be a lot more successful over the phone. That's really interesting. I was just thinking when you were saying that you believe people are trying to do the right thing. My least favorite public official is Scott Pruitt at the EPA. Mm-hmm. Um, because I just can't believe he thinks he's doing the right thing. But maybe he does. Like, maybe you're right. Maybe we just all have our own versions right. of what's right and true. I mean, I think that I think that's true, right? Like, I think that even if some, like, most people, most people really believe. Like, I don't think that most people, regardless of who they are, get up in the morning and they're like, my life mission today is to screw a bunch of people over. Like, right. my life mission today is to do the absolute wrong thing. Um, I think that people get up in the morning and they think that they're going to go out and they're going to do what they think is correct. And I think sometimes it just takes shifting your worldview a little bit to see why they think that. Like, why does Scott Pruitt get up in the morning and do the things that he does? What is he trying to achieve? And who is he trying to achieve it for? Because I think even a guy like him thinks that he's getting up in the morning to do something good for someone, right? That just may not be the person that you would prefer he focus on. Right. Right. And it may not be objectively right. Like if if we set a panel down and asked this person to explain their worldview, maybe it would be wrong. But I think that it is incumbent upon journalists to figure out how people tick and like why they think that what they're doing is correct. And I've not yet met anyone who I think doesn't fit that mold, right? I've not yet interviewed a single person who I think is inherently malicious um, and inherently out to get everyone. They think that what they are doing is correct, even if they are wrong. You just have to figure out why. That's really interesting. Um, do you? Uh, how do you feel when you're walking up to knock on a door and they don't know you're coming? Oh, super nervous. I don't know that you ever really get used to that. Like you just, I mean, there have been, 
I think door knocking is a really weird thing for everybody involved in that situation. Like, you know that you're about to put somebody in a really awkward position. And that is just a, it's a weird thing to do. I mean, it's just a weird thing to do. I will say though, like I've had door knocking go wrong like two times. I've done it. Give me a story. Give me a door knocking story. Oh, um. Yeah, I'm putting you on the spot. So I, I, I was trying to get a hold. This is like. This is not this is not a traditional door knocking story. Like, okay. I did not go to this woman's home. I went to her office and just like rolled in. Um, but I like it was a state official in Texas, and I had been trying to get a hold of her through her assistant, through her personal number, through her home number. Uh, my parents actually live in her district, um, like or on the edge of it. There, she does not represent them. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when I was home to visit her, to visit my parents one week, I like went to her district office, and she wasn't there because she was in Austin. Um, and so I like went to Austin. I like, drove from my parents' house to Austin um, to knock on this woman's office door. And when I got there, she pretended she was not there. What do you mean? Like, like she didn't she, answer or she I said, nobody's see, here. I could see her in the back room and her assistant was like, she's not here. I don't know what you want me to do. And I wanted to be like, but she's like, I see her right there. But cl- like for some <laughs> reason in the moment that didn't feel correct. And like, it felt like it would just make the situation worse. Like they were all, they were already being very hostile towards me. Right. Um, so I just like, I left and then went back an hour later. Um, and then she talked to me, you- but it was just, it was a super awkward situation. Like I've had people scream at me, but you kind of expect that. You know what I mean? Like I've had people say like, get off my property. Like I didn't ask you here. You're not supposed to be here. This is unethical. Of course it's not unethical. I've had that happen. And I kind of expect that to happen. But for somebody to be like, she's not here when I can see the back of her head right. like, is such a bizarre awkward thing and so I didn't even know how to respond like to tell you the truth I think I would have handled it differently if I had that happen to me again but that's the first time that's ever happened to me and I was just like okay and I left and came back it was very strange I feel like the appropriate thing to say is when you interview her later you say hey it's good to see you again yeah well (laughs) that would have been that would have been a good move um I yeah I was just so blown away by that that I didn't even like it didn't even register so it's it's pretty great um I have a story in front of me that you wrote uh co-wrote Mm-hmm. Uh, weak oversight lets dangerous nurses work in New York. And uh, you wrote it for ProPublica. You co-authored it. Yeah. Uh, about uh, nursing regulations in New York, in New York mm-hmm. State. And it ended up leading to a bill that was passed in New York State legislature that would uh, additional oversight for nurses who've committed crimes right. or harmed patients. Um, I feel like the best I've ever done is have write a story that Delaware and Delaware State wound up playing a football game against each other. I feel like you destroy <laughs> that here. And it must be an amazing, or maybe not, I don't know, Must, but it would strike me as an amazing feeling to write something and see a direct impact of that work. Correct? Yeah, no, I mean, it really is. And I, you know, I think that it is especially rewarding when the story takes you so long to do. So that story that you're referring to, I actually started that story one of my when I was in grad school. One of my professors was Charles Ornstein. This is who, at Columbia? This is at Columbia. Okay. One of my professors is Charles Ornstein, and he's a health reporter here. Um, and I took investigating health care with him. And I started that story in his class. And oh. so I had been working on that story for almost two years by the time 
that it published. Wait, wait, wait. And, let me ask you a question. Why, like, why even that story? Like, why did you start working on that of all things? Why nursing? Like, who cares? Because it's you know? so fucked up in this state. Like, it is, it is completely insane, the lack of oversight in this state, given that New York is supposed to be this, like, hyper-protective, liberal bastion of, like, government accountability. Like, it is not at all like that in these professions. I mean, in, in nursing in New York, like, they don't even background check you before you get a license in the wow. state. Like, the state licensure authority here does not background check nurses. And they do not run your license against other states before they give it to you. They do nothing. They just give you a license. And it is crazy and results in direct harm to patients. How do you like, even know this? Like, how do you even know that to look into it? You know what I mean? So Charlie had done a story that was very similar to this um, in California when he worked for the LA Times. And mm -hmm. he'd said to me, in the course of this class, he was like, you know, I think that New York does the same thing. And so the two girls that I did the story with, Daniela Porat and Rosalind Adams, Daniela now works for the investigative post in Buffalo and Rosalind Adams is on the investigative team on, at BuzzFeed. The three of us were like, yeah, it definitely is. Because we took like on that hunch we ran around and got all of the data on New York licensure for nurses, all of the data for New York, for New Jersey and Pennsylvania and Connecticut, because those states are like contiguous. Right. Mm -hmm. And so our thought was, let's see if nurses who have license in both states, which is not uncommon because they're right next door to each other, um, get disciplined by the other state when they get disciplined in their home state, right? So like if a Pennsylvania nurse gets her license revoked in Pennsylvania, what happens to the license that she holds in New York? And so we pulled all of these records and we painstakingly, like it took months, like we painstakingly went through and individually searched the histories of all of these nurses that were licensed in New York and all of these three states. And we found that like a microscopic portions of the nurses who were disciplined for huge, horrible things in these three states we're just like not at all being disciplined in New York. So, I mean, a lot of nurses that we talked to would be like, oh, yeah, I got my license revoked in Connecticut. So I just went across the border and worked in New York. Wow. And so like, wait, let me had... ask you a question. Someone mm -hmm. tells you that you right. you can't really react in a major way. Right. Like you can't be like, whoa, that's crazy. Like they're talking to you. You have to be like, oh, right. right. I mean, you know, it was let me tell you about one of the conversations. And I think that this is like a testament to like how awkward phone yeah. exchanges can be like so there was this kid that we profiled actually kid because he was probably like i don't know 25 and he was a he was a nurse in california and he decided that he was going to start a little business selling party drugs over ebay and so this kid bought these drugs on ebay this kid in georgia overdosed on them and died and so this guy got arrested for selling drugs without a prescription. And so he goes to jail while he is, this is true, while he is in jail, inside of jail, he files a renewal for his New York nursing license and oh it is God. approved. That's it's amazing. approved. And so I try to call this kid a bunch of times. He's just been in jail. He just got out of jail. Like he filed the, he filed it in I think April, he got out of jail in June with an active nursing license. 
And so I'm calling this kid. All of his numbers are disconnected. Not super surprising because mm-hmm. he's just been in jail. Um, so I finally call his dad. I finally get a hold of his dad. And I'm like, and I sent a certified letter to his house. Um, his dad does not tell his kid that I have called, but the kid gets the certified letter and he calls me and I'm sitting at my desk and he's like, Hey, this is, you know, the kid. And I was like, totally caught off guard. I was like at eating a bagel at the time. He probably thinks you want to buy some ecstasy. He's like, yeah, I don't know what he thinks. And (laughs) so he's like, you know, like in the email or like in the letter I sent him, I'm like trying to be super straightforward so that if he doesn't call me back, he's at least not surprised that his name is going to go in this story about like delinquent nurses. Cause that would be a nasty shock. Um, So he knows that I want to talk to him about the fact that he renewed his nursing license from prison. Um, And, and so he, we, I call him and I'm like, Hey, like, or he calls me and I very upfront, I'm like, Hey, like I am going to write everything that you're saying down. Is that fine? And are you okay with being quoted in the story? And he was like, yeah. And he was mad at me. He was so mad. And so I'm like writing everything down wildly that this kid is saying. And he's just screaming at me. And he's like, you're ruining my life again. I've always taken great care of my patients. Like I was just trying to run a little business on the side. It doesn't have anything to do with my competency as a nurse. And any of my patients could tell you that. Like he in his mind, right? And this, I guess this gets back at like, everybody wakes up in the morning thinking they're doing the right thing. Like in his mind, he never connected selling illegal drugs online and the judgment that that would require with the judgment that it is required to be a nurse. That's amazing. in, In his mind, those two ideas, like those two parts of his life were entirely disconnected. Um, and it was just a really bizarre conversation. But let me ask you this. Um, and, do you, um, yeah. he's talking to you and he's, he's upset. I mean, maybe he's this guy who feels like he's turned his life around and now you're kind of ruining it. Like, um, I think that's what he thought. Yeah. Do you have empathy for that? Or are you like, to hell with you? This is, you know, whatever. No, I mean, like, I think that empathy has boundaries, right? So like on, on one hand, I am totally empathetic of a kid who fucked up and goes to jail and just wants to get back out and start over and like make something with his life. I am like totally, totally empathetic towards that. And we had a really long and I think productive conversation about him wanting to do just that. But I think at the end of the day, the, the like loyalty in the story, even if this doesn't necessarily come out in the conversation you have with every individual pe- person, the loyalty in the story has to be with the most vulnerable person. And in this instance, right, he is not the most vulnerable person. In this instance, the most vulnerable person is the patient that he would be caring for at some point, right? right. Like, whether that's in a nursing home and these people are not, like, they can't decide things for themselves or whether this is in a hospital and an emergency situation, like those people are some of the most vulnerable people in the country. And if like, I am more empathetic about a nurse who like killed a kid with party drugs on eBay than I am his eventual patient. then I think that that's a little bit of a problem. So I think, you know, empathy is useful and, and important, but I, you always have to keep in mind like who you're writing for. Um, and I think that was just that in the in in this story. It was just the patients because Isn't... I mean there were there were other nurses that like we super felt like 
you know, that we felt empathy towards. Like, you know, there were people who like were addicted to drugs and had stolen drugs from their hospital and they were clean now. And they like, you know, and there were other people who like had a DWI a bunch of times while they were a nurse, but hadn't had one in a while. And like, you know, I think that each of those was value judgments. Like we used some of them, we didn't use others. um, And those like, that was a product of, lots of conversation and a, and a lot of sleepless nights. But I think, I mean, like, I feel like we made the right call. Does writing a story, sharing a byline with two others, and I don't mean the actual sharing of the byline. I mean, actually, mm-hmm. uh, like, I, I've co-bylined a couple of things, but I've never triple bylined anything. Mm-hmm. Um, it sounds like a major pain in the ass, is it not? You know what? I mean, I think it super depends who you end up working with. Like, it was a total accident that the three of us, ended up co-bylining this story um, because it just like came out of a grad school class and we just kept working on it. Like there was no, it wasn't like Danielle is really good at this and Rosalind's really good at this and Jessica's really good at this. So let's put them together. It, but it worked out really, really well. And I think that in order to do that and work on a project for almost two years with, with three people, it requires like a lot of organization. It requires a lot of humility and it requires like an ability to, like recognize where your strengths are and not be offended if somebody's better at that thing than you. So like I was really good at data stuff. So I did all of the numbers in that story. Daniela was excellent, like at being incredibly empathetic on the phone and like getting public records out of public records officers. So she did most of that. There were too many phone calls for her to do all of them. And Rosalind was excellent at like, getting people to like, first of all, having incredibly contentious phone calls. She was great at that. Um, But also like getting people to trust her with very sensitive information. And so like she handled all of like the sources who came to us anonymously. And so I think that, you know, there's a tendency, I think from journalists, especially to want to do all of those things. Mm -hmm. Um, But you just can't. And especially for a story that's this big, that required as much thought and as much time as this did, you can't do everything or it will just take so long. So I think that that, but I, but I mean, I think it worked out really, really well. Yeah, clearly. Um, I I got one more for you here. I was, uh, I was digging through your, your work and Mm -hmm. excellent, excellent, excellent. Really good. Really interesting. And then you just wrote this the other day and I was like, damn, so you wrote for the Columbia Journalism Review, Master Trump's Game, Don't Get Pissed, Do Journalism, yeah. um, <laughs> which was so good. And uh, I'll just, I, you know, I, uh, I'll just read the beginning here. Journalists took to Twitter, TV, radio and print last night. This is after the Phoenix speech to blast back at the president of the United States after he insulted them at his Phoenix rally. They wanted their readers to know that they were patriots, that they love their country and that they will tell the truth. But President Trump's war with the media is a game. And when the media responds with its straight-to-the-camera soliloquies or preening opinions, declaring journalists the true defenders of the First Amendment, his base simply rejoices in our discomfort. I agree with you, but yeah. it's really hard. No, it is. It's super, super hard. So how do you – I mean, look, all he does is bash us. He mm-hmm. bashes the media nonstop. He kills right. the media nonstop. The Phoenix rally where they were chanting against CNN mm-hmm. and he's ripping – are we, are we just not supposed to take the bait? Is that your, is that the basic don't take the bait? You know, I mean, I think, I think that, so I have a lot to say about this, but I will start here. Um, I think that there is a difference between Trump 
when he is just bitching about things and and insulting people and doing the the things that he does um, every day to whoever his target is. Um, and between him actually suggesting policies that would in any way impede the press. So I think that if Trump meaningfully says, I am ending the daily briefing, or I am taking away the Washington Post's media credentials, or press will no longer be allowed in the back of my presidential commissions. Like, if he does that stuff, then we should use all of the power that we have to fight back against that. But I think that this goes back to what I was saying earlier. There is only so much bandwidth. And if we are spending this much time complaining every time he insults us ever, we're just not going to get anything done. And also no one is moved by that. I, you know, I, the day after this happened, I listened to NPR morning edition, which I do every morning and I love morning edition, but I like one third of their coverage about that Phoenix rally was about like was replaying his insults towards the media, even though they weren't new. And even though they didn't suggest any like material harm to journalism or our ability to do our jobs. And then I read Nicholas Kristoff's column today, which was just about how like, we aren't the enemy, Mr. President, right? Like, who is that for? Because none of those things are convincing to someone who actually believes what Trump is saying about the media. And people have believed what Trump is saying about the media for longer than Trump has been a major figure in American politics, right? And so I think that we're just wasting our breath. And we could spend a lot more time focused on really excellent policy coverage. NPR could have taken those five minutes out of the 15 that they gave his Phoenix rally and focused on his threatening to pull out of NAFTA, which impacts thousands of people, or the racial resentment that he stirred up and the impact that it's having on massive swaths of our community. Uh, but they didn't, right? They spent five minutes talking about how journalists are being unfairly treated. And, like, no one gives a shit. Like, yeah. no one cares that journalists are being treated badly. We because care. There's, we, we, care. we care. And and that's the problem, right? Is that, like, we run, we care. Really, we care a lot. And we think that what we're doing is really cool and what we're doing really is really good. And we probably hang out with people and are married to people who think the same thing. So in this echo chamber that we live in, right, we're sitting here being like, everybody hates this. Like, you're being so unfair to us and it's so unjust. But no one outside of this bubble gives a shit. Like, I, I am from Texas. My parents and everyone that I am aware of in my family voted for Donald Trump. I will tell you right now that my family doesn't give a shit. And if my family doesn't care that I am being treated badly, nobody does. And so that, I mean, that's just the reality that we're living in right now. And so we can scream and whine and do straight to camera monologues by Jake Tapper or whoever about like the importance of the first amendment and like the importance of journalism, but like no one cares about that what they're going to care about. And even if they don't care about it right now, what they're going to care about is really meaningful investigative journalism that holds people in power to account. And that's, I mean, and that's what we should spend our time doing because history will bear that out, right? 
in five years or two years or a year or whatever, people are going to look back and be like, this was correct. They are not going to look back and be like, do you remember that excellent monologue that Jake Tapper did about the importance of the First Amendment? That's not what they're going to say. Right. So, I mean, I think that it is uncomfortable for everyone right now. It is uncomfortable for journalists that we are in this position. It is uncomfortable that we are being insulted. It is wrong that we are being insulted. The media environment right now is toxic and it is ridiculous. But we win no, like we will not win the, the war. And I don't think we're in a war, but like we will not win this fight by screaming into the wind. We will only win it if we do what we do so well and we do it better every day. And we don't allow these insults to, to distract us. Um, I mean, I think that that's, I think that's all we can do. Right. You know, what's depressing is um, the Washington Post is reporting. You probably saw this interior secretary mm-hmm. recommends Trump alter at least three national monuments. And at least in LA, the number one trending thing right now is Katy Perry's new video for Swish Swish. Right. Right. <laughs> so, I mean, yeah, like It's a good video. I Look. It's a good video. It's a good video. I'm sure it's a very catchy song. Yeah, it's a very catchy song. Yeah. I and and I think that's the other thing is that like you know, it's so weird to be a national politics reporter and then go out to dinner with people who are not like really politically involved and yeah. all they want to do is talk about politics. Because it's, it feels like my whole world like revolves around like whatever Donald Trump decides to tweet out that day or yeah. like, you know, all the stuff that the presidential commission is doing. But like I have to remind myself every day that like most people like watch 10 minutes of news a day and feel like they're well informed. And that's fine. Like yeah. th- no one should feel like they need to spend as much time reading the news as I do. But like it's so it's it's always like it's discouraging and like helpful that you know, maybe everything that I think about all day long, other people aren't thinking about. I don't, I don't know how to take it. Do you think we survived this? Do you think 10 years from now we're going to be looking back and we'll be like, man, that was a fucked up time, but we're okay. You know, I think so. I mean, I really think so. I think that I, you know, (laughs) before I was a reporter, I was a high school history teacher. Newark, uh, Newark, New Jersey, right? I worked in Newark, New Jersey, and I taught uh, I taught world history and I taught speech and debate and computer literacy. I taught all three of those things. Oh. And um, and I think like, you know, I taught I taught history through World War Two. And that was like the time period that I taught. And I feel like everybody would feel a lot better if they just read a history book about World War Two. Yep. <laughs> or read a history book about uh, the Cold War. Even. Right. Um, or Nixon or whatever. Or Ni- right. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think that I think that because a lot of what Donald Trump does is so unprecedented and so shocking to people, they kind of forget that the rest of the government exists and they kind of forget about like the three branches of government and how and how the, those things are supposed to balance out. And I think that there's a lot of doomsday saying on both sides of the aisle um and that that's just never been how america shakes things out in the end um i think that you know it's it's a complicated path but you always end up at the right exit um and i think that that will be fine right well um jessica you you're entertaining beyond belief and i could talk to you for another (laughs) five hours about this stuff because everyone in my house is tired of me talking about politics so (laughs) Yeah, you know, and I, d- I do want to say, for the record, I did get Delaware and Delaware State to play in a football game. So 
Next time you there sit you down. Go. Next time you sit down to watch Delaware play Delaware State in football, you think of me, okay? I will. I will one hundred percent do that. Thank you, uh, Jessica. Okay. Thank you so much for appearing. I appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. Thanks so much. Okay, bye bye. I want to thank today's guest, Jessica Usman from ProPublica, for joining me on Two Riders Sling and Yang. One can follow Jessica on Twitter at, at Jessica Usman, H-U-S-E-M-A-N, and go to ProPublica.org to read all of her stuff. One can listen to Two Riders Sling and Yang on both iTunes and on Bumpers.fm. Reviews of this show are always appreciated. Truly they are. The music again is by MC White Owl. Thanks for joining me, and please, please remember, keep writing.